You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Last night, we asked you what the best all-time Hard Knocks moments were. Courtney Cronin with me here today on Spain and Fitz. Courtney, you won't be surprised to hear Antonio Cromartie trying and failing to name all of his kids uh, was the top, top answer. We got some other good ones, but we got the premiere of another Cowboys season of Hard Knocks last night. Give you some takeaways from that, including their quarterback situation. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, filling in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Last night, the Straight Talk was all about Ocho Cinco's weird phrases and learning about banks, uh, Antonio Cromartie's kids, Bob Wiley of the Browns and his stomach moving up and down every time he said hut, hut. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of good memories brought back. Hard Knocks hasn't quite been the same destination show as it was early on. A little bit of the luster wore off um, when you just kind of got used to the rhythms of it. And then, of course, with COVID last year, it made things a little bit weirder. Courtney, last night, there was some meat on the bone in terms of Dak Prescott revealing he had gotten two surgeries on that ankle. Also, a lot of good personality moments for Dak Prescott, for those who maybe haven't seen a lot of him off of the football field. Um, and for the first time ever, I actually respected some writing on the show. Usually it's the worst, but they did a nice job of going straight from the, you know, guys uh, and the moment they are always most worried about getting cut straight into a conversation of John Fassel talking about getting a vasectomy. So I thought that was nice. Uh, they finally surprised me at one point with one of their corny bits. Yeah, I liked it last night. I thought that there was some news that we found out Dak Prescott had not one but two surgeries on the ankle that came right at the beginning of the episode. And there was a little bit of humor infused in it, seeing the friendship between Ezekiel Elliott and Dak Prescott. And apparently Zeke has never wrapped a gift before. Uh, That was the most cumbersome process. And I just, I honestly was like, I was getting hives just watching him with the tape. And then he was like cutting the paper. I mean, it was like a four-year-old was wrapping this. But nonetheless, that was kind of cool to see a slim down Ezekiel Elliott too. I mean, he's going into a really pivotal year for himself um, based on kind of what he's done the last few years. So seeing a change in him, I'm curious how that storyline will progress. Um, The big thing I think that we you know, skipped out on or just didn't mention at all. There wasn't anything in there about the way that COVID-19 is affecting this season with the Mm -hmm. protocols and everything else. It was almost like they kind of just like completely forgot about that storyline. Sure. You see some guys wearing masks here and there, and it's evident just because of the time that we're in right now, but it wasn't a focal point of talking about, Hey, all the coaches here have to be vaccinated which players here are vaccinated, which players are not, because that's the storyline at camps. I'm sorry, I cover an NFL football team. It is a big storyline, and to think that that's not happening in Dallas doesn't seem like that's uh, probably entirely true and a true and accurate representation of of training camp thus far. But I think they're off to a good start. I'm curious now that Dak is back at practice throwing in limited fashion with his shoulder, what's going to happen on next week's episode about how he got to that point. Courtney Cronin is with me here, Sarah Spain, ESPN Radio Spain, and Fitz. Yeah, I think if I had to guess, there probably was some reticence to get right back into COVID after it dominated last year's storylines. And a lot of people are just, they have so much COVID fatigue that even though there's interest in how it's affecting camp and how the, t- the how the team's handling it, I think people are ready to dive into more of the storylines that are personality-driven. And eventually, I would imagine they'll touch on that, but maybe not with as much focus as last year because of Uh, the fact that people have been talking about protocols and such for such a long time now. Um, You mentioned Dak. 
It was it was uh, interesting, certainly, to have a behind the scenes view of how the team handled it when he said he was getting sore in that shoulder. On the one hand, you think, of course, go consult outside doctors, talk to whoever you need to figure it out. Go go consult with the Rangers. On the other hand, you're like, why do you need doctors outside of your own and the sport of football regarding this injury? What is it exactly? And why is it weird enough that it can't immediately be diagnosed, addressed and then given a timetable? Um, the good news is, like you pointed out, he's now on day two of getting some throws in. Daryl Moose Johnston, a former fullback for the Cowboys, was on with KJNC this morning and talked about like how much a Dak really need to see real game time before game one, or are they just going to let him see how he feels both with the arm and the ankle in game one? I think he needs the preseason reps to be in the pocket, a live pocket with bodies around that leg just to kind of get over that final hurdle. Does he need to do that in preseason? Can he just wait till week one to do it? Yeah, maybe. But I, I think every time you hear quarterbacks getting back into the mix, and, and we've got the Vikings at the Bengals week one, and that's one of the things that Joe Burrow is struggling with a little bit right now. And he's admitted it. I'm kind of subconsciously worried about people around my legs in the pocket. So that would be the one big thing for me. It's a little bit different situation with how the injury happened when you talk about Dak and you talk about Joe Burrow. So maybe Dak is, is fine mentally, but that would be my only concern is is how does he look in the pocket in, in a real live 11-on-11 drill? Are his eyes still down the field? Can he feel the rush, or is he looking for the rush? Courtney, your team, your account in the Vikings brought up there. Uh, what do you think, after covering the league for as many years as you have, about the need for any game experience, of, even in the preseason, for a quarterback coming off injury? You know, Dak said last in last night's episode that – you know, he wants the reps because when he doesn't have those reps continuously, he gets rusty. I think that that's evident. And you want to learn how to push it. You want to learn how to pull back the reins uh, and try to save yourself effectively. I mean, we all remember a couple of years ago in 2019 when Cam Newton got hurt playing in the preseason and that foot injury ended his career in Carolina. Um, I think about it. We talked with Kirk Cousins about this in Minnesota today and you got to give guys some run because there is something to be said about being able to gel offensively to have a cohesion with your team, especially if guys are going in and out of the lineup because of injuries. And Kirk said today that, you know, he wants those reps. He wants to play. And Mike Zimmer, on the other hand, was more coy and keeping things to the vest about who he'd be playing in preseason games and who he wouldn't. But typically starters, at least in Minnesota and other places, but they don't play a lot in the preseason. I think that's probably the right move because why put yourself at risk for injury when it could happen at any time? And especially if you're a quarterback getting used to the feel of people being around your injured lower body part, Mm -hmm. you know, that's important. Um, But I feel like you'd almost rather run the risk of it when it actually counts for a game in week one than have you potentially get injured week two of the preseason. That's always the, that's always the issue. I agree with you. I just feel like if, if, if it's always a risk to injury, maybe a couple reps in there just prevent you from being super rusty and getting at least a series when yeah, it counts. I think with the first yeah. team offense, you need to at least have, let him, let him have one drive. Let and him have one drive. Off the field. See, see how it goes. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Kritz, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz. Courtney Kritz, that would be if we put you both together. Uh, Chris Mortensen, ESPN NFL insider, was on Barton Hahn talking about a different quarterback who is making an earlier return than perhaps expected. We heard five to 12 weeks probably on Carson Wentz after the foot surgery. Now they think he'll be around for week one. But Chris talked about what he might have to go through to get there. This is really about a pain management issue. And Carson, he has a high pain threshold. 
And yesterday, walking around the entire practice, as I said, with no boot and hardly any limp, that was a good sign and reaffirmed to me more than once that this, uh, you know, they feel better about week one. We're kind of out of time here, Courtney, so quickly on this. My concern for Wentz is knowing how fragile he's been in the past, how prone he is to injury. For him to get out there if he's not quite ready and push it while feeling pain uh, could lead to injuries elsewhere. My concern is how does this go from a 5- to 12-week timetable of recovery to, oh, he could be ready for week one. I don't understand that. That, to me, seems like not cutting corners, but maybe they're trying to expedite this too quickly, and it could actually lead you down the wrong road. Yeah, and maybe the uh, the footsteps of one Sam Ellinger, who everyone is saying is doing so well in camp, has him uh, a little bit worried. Or maybe it's Philip Rivers, for that matter. It's a Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Coming up, Courtney's going to drop some Vikings camp knowledge. Plus, we have an update on the NCAA investigation into the Baylor football program. It's coming up next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. We've made it through a whole segment about hard knocks, and I didn't ask Courtney whether she thought it was a good thing to quote Austin Powers and announce that your team is going to have mojo moments. I'm a little worried about how that could come back to bite the Cowboys, Courtney. I'm not sure how you felt about that, but uh, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, filling in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Guest join us on the Goodyear Hotline. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. At Progressive, they're making things even easier. They'll help you bundle your home and car insurance together so you could save on both. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Uh, quickly, mojo moments, a good thing or a little too specific and likely to show up in some storylines and leads this year for the Cowboys? I mean, it's better than smashing watermelons, right? They did that right. when they were up here in Minnesota yep. before they won that game with Andy Dalton as their backup quarterback. So I guess it can't get any cheesier, yep. more football guy than that. But the fact that Mike McCarthy was talking to his staff in um, in the in the scene in Hard Knocks to be like, man, how can you not use uh, – like thinking it was such a great and idea Austin to Powers use a quote, quote when you can. Austin Powers. Like, what year like, is it, my friend? <laughs> and all, I mean, yeah, I honestly wonder how many of the players, because they're younger than me, and I don't yeah. even remember seeing Austin Powers until I was older than when it came out. Like, how many of them actually know the reference? Right. Notably, by the way, not just Austin Powers, but Austin Powers to the spy who shagged me. Uh, so an even even deeper cut. I will say, I am tempted to name my fantasy football team the Charlie Bleep Arounds. Uh, the example that he used, like, there's going to be no Charlie Bleep Arounds. Yeah. Uh, I like that, and I might be willing to find out what would happen if I made it my fantasy football team name. Uh, you mentioned the watermelon smashing. Uh, let's talk Vikings camp. I'm kind of curious as someone who's, how many years now is this for you being, you know, in a beat reporter role where you're going to camp? This is actually my sixth. If it's, you know, sixth. This okay. season covering the Vikings, and I did this for the Raiders and 49ers in 2016. Okay, so you hosted a lot with me last year. We talked a lot about the different protocols and how covid you know, getting used to interviewing players on Zoom and things like that. How much more normal does it feel this year and how different is it still from the first four years of you covering the league? It's definitely different because we're wearing contact tracers. We, you know, are having to maintain some social distancing outside, but I tend to think it's a little bit more normal, a little bit more 2019 feel to it in Minnesota than it is in other places, simply based on the fact that we can grab players coming off the field. We can, you know, arrange our own interviews that way. The one thing about training camp is there's no, in normal years and 
this year, too. There's no locker room access. So that's the one difference between training camp and the regular season. But it's a free-for-all at the end of the day. You are able to grab players coming off the field, and usually I try to do that because I think you can get better stuff when you're talking one-on-one with players um, instead of at at a scrum. And, you know, my team allows us to do both. There are other teams in the NFL, the Denver Broncos, for example, who are in town this week, that they they grab the players that you were going to talk to. They set all that stuff up at the outdoor podium. It's after practice. The four players that you get, that's who Denver decides. And that's not just a Denver thing. That's what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are doing. That's what the New Orleans Saints are doing. It's pretty common around the league. So I'm curious to see once we get into regular season rules where the protocols will change and the rules will change for our access, how differently that looks. Because right now it's not looking like we're going to get locker room access this fall. And I know some fans don't think that that's a big deal, but I promise you it is. The quality of the coverage (laughs) has been affected by COVID-19. There's no way around it. And I think it will still be affected this year, but we're working at least as a group. I'm part of the pro football writers association of America. We're, we're trying um, to make this better and to remedy this and and to make it better than it was last year. And at least training camps kind of giving me a glimmer of hope that we might see that happen. Yeah. It's, it's one of those weird things to me always is the hatred of the media um, fails to recognize that all of the stories that you want about the players that you love, all the information that you want for the behind the scenes of what's going on with your squad, uh, there's people that need to go seek that out and write it and, and discuss it. Um, it's always a little bit strange. Uh, you guys do need that access to get the best content and to help drive the machine that is football. It's not just being out there playing, but all the coverage that goes into it and the debates and everything else as well, of course. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin filling in. Tonight for Fitz, giving us a lot on Vikings camp. We'll get into the storylines from camp, from Kirk Cousins to everybody else a little bit later in the show. But Jessica Luther, an investigative reporter who does great work on all sorts of the toughest stories out there on sexual assaults and harassment, particularly on campuses, is going to join us to talk about the latest update on what's been a story years in the making on the Baylor football program. But we want to set it up for you before she comes in to give some insight on on what happened today. And it's been five years since Art Bryles, the head coach over at Baylor, was fired um, in light of a massive sexual assault investigation, tons of allegations made against students, including football players. And today the NCAA revealed that they have found Bryles and the university did not violate any rules by being inactive, not responding to allegations, not following through. They did punish the school relating to impermissible benefits and improper recruiting practices involving a female hostess group. So Baylor will get four years probation, uh, some other recruiting restrictions. They are not banned from playing in the postseason. They didn't take away any scholarships. And the uh, former assistant director of football ops who would not cooperate in the investigation was given a five-year show cause order. So essentially, they've punished Baylor for the most basic ideas of impermissible benefits and improper recruiting because they claim that there are not enough clear rules on reporting allegations of sexual and interpersonal violence, that the school itself as a whole is so bad at doing that that they couldn't poke, you know, focus and point a finger at the football program and decide that they were demonstrably worse than the rest of the school at not doing this thing. And the way they talked about Art Bryles in particular was severe and yet without any punishment. 
essentially saying that he was incurious toward potential criminal conduct by his players, that he failed to meet even the most basic expectations of how a person should react to the kind of conduct at issue here, but not technically in violation of any rules. Courtney, this is both shocking and upsetting and 100% predictable. I don't understand this part of the NCAA statement, quote, do, like that the rules, quote, do not call for the Committee on Infractions to adjudicate, end quote, how schools respond to issues like the handling of sexual violence. Like, how can you not make a formal right. judgment or decision about a very serious problem that has been well-documented, well-investigated by your people, and you know, well-reported. How, how can you, this is what I can't stand about the NCAA when they choose where they want to, you know, put their mm-hmm. foot down on certain things. This is constantly happening. And I just, this is like the most clear cut case that makes the most sense to come down the hardest, but because their rule book, all of their things don't have some sort of clear cut answer. They're like, Oh, well, sorry, we can't just like go ahead and act with that, you know, outside of our means, outside of our rules. That would be unfair. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me, like how they came down with this. And I'm really curious with just to hear from Jessica and within her reporting, how, how they figure they can get away with doing it this way. Like, Oh sure. There were some recruiting violations here. There's something with our Bryles here. We can go ahead and throw the book at them about lack of institutional control. Technically doesn't this also fall under lack of institutional control when right. you have these things being reported, but not actually investigated by your own school and your own staff. Yeah, I don't understand how the NCAA can claim to be in charge of athletic programs across the country when they failed to stand up and act in the face of COVID last year, when they failed to properly supply the resources and support for women's sports, which was just proven in a completely damning internal review. And when here they essentially step back and say that they do not have the purview to react to 17 women reporting sexual and domestic assaults involving 19 football players over the course of a decade. It's beyond me what the NCAA is supposed to do then and what they are in charge of beyond telling people that they can't get cream cheese with their bagels. It's it's incredibly frustrating. And I hope that Jessica Luther, who's going to join us next, is going to give us any sort of insight into how this is possible. It's coming up next on Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Joining us now to talk more about the Baylor story that had shocking results years after the initial controversy began. Jessica Luther, investigative reporter who has uh, covered so well so many stories like this, although I don't know that there are any quite like this, Jessica. We were just talking about the NCAA's language around why the only punishments for Baylor ended up being about impermissible benefits and recruiting style and not the culture of rape and sexual assault over the course of a decade or so at the school. One of the things they said was that the instances of non-reporting didn't constitute impermissible benefits to football student-athletes because of a campus-wide culture of non-reporting. Essentially, the school was so bad at doing what they were supposed to that we couldn't point the finger at the football program specifically for doing that. How is it possible that there are rules about mandatory reporting and there are so many conversations about those rules and then what they're clearly violated, the result is nothing? Well, I, would th- I mean, I think the point is that the NCAA itself does not have rules on this. I've been saying this for, I've been doing this work for eight years and I've been saying it from the beginning, like they're, for all of the minutia and all of the NCAA guidebooks and rule books and all sorts of things, 
there's just nothing on this. When I heard the news this morning that the NCAA sanctions were finally coming down, uh, I said to my reporting partner, Dan Solomon, I was like, I don't think it's going to be anything because I don't think there was a rule to break. And that is what it turned out to be. I'm confused by Mark Emmert's statement, though. It seemed pretty, sure. pretty like weird. Can you, for the for those who haven't seen it, um, Jessica retweeted it. It's on her Twitter account right now, and it just talks about you know there's conduct from Baylor administrators, coaches, student athletes um, that's deemed unacceptable and runs counter to the values of the NCAA. Well, then how come the NCAA doesn't do anything about it? Like, his statement doesn't seem to match up with what the ruling actually was. Why is that? Right, uh, because I think it's just a bunch of lip service from the NCAA. I think all they've ever done on this issue uh, since I've been covering it is give lip service to it. I mean, they've gone so far as like they created, and it's actually really good, a PDF kind of document back in like 2015 or 2016 uh, about dealing with gendered violence uh, in athletic departments. But it's just a PDF on the website. Like you'd have to go find it. Google it for yourself. There's nothing enforceable around it. And you can say all day long that these are your values. But if you don't put anything in place to practice those values, which clearly they cannot do, uh, as they told us very explicitly today, that there are no rules that were broken here around uh, this. I mean, they admitted, you know, that what happened with Baylor was bad. Um, And, you know, there's stuff about Art Bryles and how he didn't care enough to do anything about this, but that there are just no rules here around it. And the NCAA is nothing if not rules. I mean, that is how they tell us what they value. And I think that's part of what the, the pain of this today is that it's just so clear who they do not value. Yeah. I mean, they put the language in there with tremendous reluctance. Like we Mm -hmm. wanted to find a reason to bring the hammer down on what was very clearly a terrible culture full of people who did not care about anything but football and money, but they couldn't. Why did it take five years to come out and say, there aren't any rules on this, so it was impossible for us to find a specific rule that they broke to hold them accountable for something this awful? Yeah, I have no idea about why it took this long. I I just happened to hear from someone that I was interviewing a couple of weeks ago that was at Baylor at the time that they had talked to the NCAA a couple of months ago. And I was like, Oh yeah, the NCAA is still investigating this. Mm-hmm. Like it took so long and I don't, I don't understand it. I, so much of this is deeply confusing because they're saying one thing, they're clearly doing another. The committee itself is, you know, telling us that these things are very bad, but they can't do anything about it. Uh, and I just want to say to your listeners right now, like one thing that really gets me about this is that people often harm people that they know that are in the circles with them. And in a lot of these cases, this is true at Baylor as well as everywhere else that I work at or that I've looked at, uh, the people who are harmed are also often student athletes. So it's not just that we're talking about like the fact that football players were were hurting people a lot of the people who are hurting the people reporting this behavior were also student athletes and i just keep coming back to like what is the ncaa for like who are they actually protecting and helping and serving uh like what student athlete experience do they actually care about and i just feel like today was such a stark reminder i mean we just had the ncaa report about the failures around march madness and equity within athletics 
And then on the heels of that, we get this report about Baylor and gendered violence. And again, we're just reminded that the NCAA is not looking out for female athletes in a multitude of ways. And I just, I don't know. I, it's, it is upsetting when you see it all kind of lined up like that. So, Jessica, it seems like, given everything Art Bryles has said through his representation, that he feels this ruling uh, clears the mm-hmm. way for him to return to college football. And remember back in 2019, Jay Hobson tried to hire him on its Southern Miss, and that faced a lot of public backlash, and was the kibosh was put on that very quickly, as it should have been. But how do you see this playing out? Like, do you think he will be back in college football? It just kind of feels like any team that's willing to take him on is welcoming a firestorm. Yeah, I think that's probably right, Um, especially uh, in this day and age. You know, at the same time, we just saw in the NBA with the hiring of Chauncey Billis and Jason Kidd, like it's possible to hire people and just kind of ignore the noise and say you care and then like kind of move on from it. Uh, Art Bryles, I think, exists in his own little space, though. I I do wonder if he's just too toxic uh, an idea at this point. He hasn't coached a college football game in a long time, uh, even though he was very good at it back when he did it. So I don't know. It's hard to say. His rep, his lawyer, I guess it was, said he was exonerated, I think is the word he used. If someone chooses to hire him, that's not true i mean the committee was pretty harsh on art Bryles. actually max olson retweeted or tweeted out um the sections of the of their findings where they specifically say that art Bryles just didn't care enough on this issue that he punted a lot when it came to these reports uh and i think you know a school's gonna have to deal with people bringing that up over and over and over again uh if they do choose to hire him into this position so I don't know. I think it's hard at this point to see him getting a job, but I wouldn't put it past past anyone either. Uh, Yeah. Jessica Luther, investigative reporter, is with us here on Spain and Fitz. Jessica, remember, uh, remind me the name of your book that's specifically on college football and sexual assault culture. Yeah, it's called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. If people want to read, uh, she's done extensive work on all sorts of, uh, of of examples of this. And quickly, by the way, I wanted to point out the actual language from Bryle's attorney is about the least uh, name clearing because it, it says, you know, exonerated and clear. But then as the NCAA committee explained, the conduct at issue was pervasive and widespread throughout the Baylor campus. And it was condoned or ignored by the highest levels of Baylor's leadership. Basically, everyone was terrible. So hire my guy who was part of being terrible. Like that, that, that is the most terrible logic I've ever heard for quote unquote exoneration. Uh, Jessica, what happens mm-hmm. next? Because to me, it feels like if I were you, I'd be pulling my hair out that you have indeed been saying for years that there are no rules for this, that you predicted that this could happen as shocking as it is for those of us today that saw the news hit, you were like, yeah, that's what happens if you don't have any rules protecting people. How do we change that? How does this not become, how do we make this the thing that spurs a change for the NCAA where you're, you're just, they, they do not exist as, as a meaningful institution unless they institute some sort of rules and policy around this? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, in Mark Emirates' statement today, he, you know, j- gestured towards this new constitutional 
change whatever's going on with the NCAA constitution being rewritten and the idea that they could change things. Uh, But I will say like the NCAA had a working group around this issue. They had the great Brenda Tracy on that group. She was talking to people at the NCAA about this issue. And then all of a sudden that group was just disbanded like a couple of years ago. Uh, They, you know, they gestured towards this multiple times. So I never take that as that seriously, but you know, this is a member-led organization. They set the rules all the time. If they wanted to change it, they could just change it. Um, any The way they change any rules around this. And we've just never seen um, any actual work towards that. And I don't, I wish I had the answer for you, Sarah. Like, how do we get these people to change? The, I don't even care if they care right. about this issue in particular, if they're just doing it so they get better PR than okay. Cause all I want is to mitigate harm. Um, just go, you know, we're out I of time, but I, but I, I really know. quick, I, I really quick wanted to ask you, cause I just thought of this. What was different about Penn state? Why were their rules broken there that they could actually punish for? Well, they walked all that back. I will say like they tried to punish them. And then what ended up happening was they were like, whoops, there's no rules. We, we, we couldn't punish them. And they walked it all back. Unbelievable. It's really, it's unbelievable. And some of the language in the report essentially saying that part of the reason they couldn't punch is a punish is because the issues at hand were not infractions. They were felonies. Like, imagine that. Imagine we can't punish yeah. them because they're not NCAA rules violations. They're felonies. Um, oh gosh, we could talk to you about this for so long, Jessica. I'm so frustrated. And I can only imagine how you feel. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Yeah, thanks for covering it. I appreciate it. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Tune into an AL battle tomorrow night as the White Sox host the Yankees. Coverage begins at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Dyersville, Iowa was the place where it all went down. The classic movie Field of Dreams shot there. And after more than 30 years, thousands of people are headed back to Dyersville for the game We've been waiting now two years for, and Jim Heavens, the most perfectly named mayor of Dyersville, Iowa. Is this Iowa? No, it's Heavens. Joins us now on Spain and Fitz. Jim, thanks for the time. Uh, This has been a long lead up because of COVID canceling the game last year. How ready is Dyersville, population 4,000, for the thousands of people expected to arrive? We are ready. And we're (laughs) uh, welcoming a lot of people already today, and tomorrow will be our big day. Showtime. How how has the city so far been, you know, people come to visit Field of Dreams, you know, every day. It's a great attraction, especially in the summertime months. How has the city changed, I guess, just in the building of this 8,000-seat stadium and well, knowing that you guys are going to be welcoming in more than half the town, half the size of the population of the town tomorrow? Well, I think, you know, the Field of Dreams has been there for 32 years, and I think in the last couple of years it's picked up a lot of momentum again, uh, which I think normally you don't see with a movie to become this popular 32 years after it's released. But uh, we were kind of surprised, I guess, initially, you know, a year or so ago when the MLB first proposed this. And uh, we certainly, I think the city and the city staff is – uh, gotten up to the task of helping MLB host this. This is MLB's game and MLB's party, and I think what we wanted to do is our role is to help them host it the best we can. And I think we're ready. We've done a lot of planning with it. We've had a lot of discussions back and forth. Obviously, we were almost ready last year and had to put our work on the shelf for a year. 
but in a way, you know, a lot of people came up to me and were offering their condolences last year that the game didn't happen. But, you know, I'm really, I think it's worked out to be a good thing because we want to try to make this an annual event and invite MLB back again next year. And I think if we would have stumbled out of the gate last year with all the COVID restrictions, you know, we want to have the first time be a good time. And I think we're ready this year and uh, ready to cuss of it. We'll know, I guess, in a day or so how we did. <laughs> the mayor of Dyersville, Iowa, home to Field of Dreams, Jim Heavens, with us here on Spain and Fitz. You mentioned this is MLB's party, but there's been a lot of work around this film and this site for years. You can stay in the house from the movie like an Airbnb. Obviously, there's a ballpark there now with 8,000 seats. It's going to look like the old Comiskey Park, which was demolished back in 91. And there's a lot of, of draw that you guys have already anticipated for years. How much was this particular game and this particular usage of your city um, just run by MLB and you stood back? And, and how much was it a partnership where you talked to them and, and, and helped them organize? Well, uh, I think it was very much a partnership. Uh, although I will tell you that MLB, you know, wanted things the way that they want them. And uh, I think that's, <laughs> That's certainly their right to do that, and our job is to help them get that job done. And there was no, you know, uh, animosity there, but I think that they have the way that they want this handled from an advertiser standpoint and a parking standpoint and a security standpoint. And I think that our job was to uh, try to help them out with that and try to get them where they wanted to go. And I think over a period of time, there's a lot of staff hours, chief of police and the economic development people, the chamber of commerce, the city administrator. Actually, they didn't really want to talk to me too much. I mean, that was great. I had a pretty good gig. All I do is give interviews to folks like you. You know, it's uh, not bad. (laughs) Who's the most interesting person or most famous person that you've seen outside of the teams, um, you know, trotting into town already? I mean, is this an event that's bringing in – you know, celebrities, uh, people that are pretty well-known throughout the sports world? Well, I think it is. You know, I haven't really seen anybody. Uh, you know, I haven't been out to the field. That's uh, off-limits so far to everybody. But, um, you know, there's some uh, some celebrities that are going to be in town, I understand, but I'm not at liberty to say who they are. Ooh, uh, what a they tease. Are, they are already here, <laughs> so maybe you'll see some, some surprises tomorrow, huh? I can't imagine that we wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be this kind of event with all the buildup that we've seen without a, cu- a yep. few of those celebrities and and some of the faces from the movie. I'm sure it's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz today. Jim Heavens with us on the Goodyear Hotline, the mayor of Dyersville, Iowa, which is preparing for thousands of people to come in. Just four thousand people live in this town, but they're going to have thousands, eight thousand alone at the ballpark for MLB's Field of Dreams game and. You know, your name is so perfect for the town. Isn't it, though? What else? It's actually, what else? It's actually the seventh word in the Bible, too. So. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I'm sure the puns, my heavens, and is this Iowa? No, it's oh, yeah. heavens. I mean, it's you've heard them all. Um, what, when, when this isn't the town from Field of Dreams, what else does your job entail? I mean, what is, what is in Dyersville when people aren't going there for Field of Dreams? Well, I would tell you that Dyersville is a very successful city. I'm not a native. I'm uh, from Illinois originally, and we moved here in 1995, and uh, I've been mayor. This is my 14th year. Wow. I had 10 years on, four years off, and four years back again. 
And, uh, you know, the mayor's job is to provide over, preside over the city council meetings. It's probably the biggest thing. And, uh, you know, you're, you're the ultimate responsibility person there. You know, you have to sign all the, the documents for the city. I mean, last week we uh, borrowed $2.5 million, and you don't have to sign the taxpayer's name to that note. Um, you know, we also uh, related the field of dreams. We just accepted a $1.5 million economic development grant from the federal government to run water and sewer out to the field of dreams. I don't know yeah. if you've ever been there or not, but it's probably about two miles outside the, uh, the normal city limits, although the field of dreams is in the city limits. So the city of Dyersville has to come up with a million dollar matching, uh, funds for that grant. But I think, uh, you know, we want to follow some capital into the Field of Dreams. I think that Absolutely. it's had new life here recently. After this, after this year, I'm certain it will, obviously. There is so much excitement around this, and it sounds like you are more than ready to welcome everybody to town as they're already coming in. Jim, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us and giving us some behind the scenes. Well, very good. Thank you for inviting me. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Jory Epstein, USA Today Cowboys reporter, joins us. Let's talk Dak. We found out he had two surgeries on the ankle, and more importantly, last night, we found out the very undramatic way that his shoulder started to hurt, which led to weeks of not being able to participate. Now, two days into throwing again. Jory, does it feel like the Cowboys were trying to limit the drama around this by downplaying the severity, or does it seem more serious because of the ways they failed to provide much information about it? Yeah, it was interesting. So I was at that first padded practice the Cowboys had when all of a sudden we're watching drills, the backups are throwing, Dak is talking to the trainer and kind of like feeling out his shoulder. And you know something's up because Dak never willingly rests, as was made clear last night in Hard Knocks. Um, and then we got news that later that day of the MRI that he had strained his shoulder. I think the Cowboys have been intentional about what they're saying to limit the drama, but I'm also like, okay, great. You can say a couple days, we'll take it day by day. And then day by day becomes two weeks. It's now been, he is back to throwing in a limited capacity, particularly in individual drills. And I do think that from all of the medical advice they're getting, and they consulted the Rangers doctors and the Yankees doctors, since this is a very baseball-like injury, they know that rest is what should heal this latissimus strain. And this isn't during the season. If it's during the season, you're getting a cortisone shot and you're suiting up and you're not thinking twice. Now, usually we'd be worried with Dak Prescott in this conversation about the ankle and wondering, okay, how's that holding up during training camp? What does that mean for the regular season and how much run he might get in these preseason games? They've got one Friday against the Arizona Cardinals. Does does the latissimus strain and what he's dealing with in the shoulder push back when you expect to see him, Jory, in any sort of preseason action? Because doesn't it kind of feel like somebody coming off these injuries needs to get a little bit of run in the preseason to feel comfortable before week one? Yeah, Dak definitely wants to play in the preseason, but he also said today, he's like, look, I know that as much as I want to play, my goal has to be to play in week one and be ready to go for the opener. I don't expect him to play this week versus Arizona, but I think there is a chance he could get a series or two next week against the Texans. That's what he wants. I mean, Mike McCarthy has said, we're not just putting our quarterback out there to put our quarterback out there, particularly when we're paying him $40 million. It needs to be with the first-team offensive line, but there is benefit to getting hit that first time and sort of shaking it off. So I think in their ideal world, next week he would return to a more full practice. 
play briefly in that third or fourth preseason game and then go back to just doing everything he can to be ready for Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. Spain and Fitz here. Spain, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz. We're talking to Jory Epstein, USA Today Cowboys reporter about Dallas camp. A lot of conversation about Mike McCarthy's speech. And, of course, every single coach is going to start camp talking about the big expectations and, um, you know, wanting to go all the way. But people are going to hold this to account because it's the Cowboys and there's a lot of big talk. We didn't really get to see what they could have been last year because of Dak's injury. 20. You know, 19, 8 and 8, 2018, 10 and 6, 2017, 9 and 7. They've kind of been, eh, other than 2015, which was an aberration, 4 and 12. They've been around a decent mark, but pretty disappointing for a team that always has high expectations. Is it realistic for him to start with Super Bowl or bust in a speech based on the makeup of this team? So I'll tell you, I think there's a difference, even though we all saw that speech because it's on Hard Knocks, there's a difference between how Mike McCarthy is describing Super Bowl or Bust this year versus last year. Last year, he was saying in conversations with us reporters in the preseason, look, frankly, that's what I'm here for. And if I'm not here to win a Super Bowl, what am I doing? That's definitely been muted this season. He also said in that same conversation about a Super Bowl on Hard Knocks that it's hard not to reflect on what we went through last year as last year. And so I think it's just been interesting that Mike McCarthy seems very aware that last year did not go well. I think that he's trying to set that tone of here's how hard we need to work if we really want to do this. And this team and this franchise has disappointed for decades now. But, yeah, I mean, I'll need to see a little bit more from the Cowboys before putting them in that Super Bowl contender conversation. The Cowboys' defense in 2020 was historically bad. They finished allowing a franchise record 473 points and the second most yards in the team's history. We saw some really odd moments throughout the season, including that time that defensive coordinator Mike Nolan had to leave the podium because he got hot sauce in his eye. So now they turn the reins over to Dan Quinn, and I'm wondering, we saw a little glimpse into it last night. Defense looked pretty juiced, but how are players receiving the former Atlanta Falcons head coach as their new dc oh yeah it's amazing i mean the number of players who have told us even if this wasn't the exact question asked that i love dan quinn i love the way he teaches i love the way he coaches and he's the type of guy i want to play for they're absolutely responding to dan and that is reflected in the energy in practice the defense is way more vocal than it was last year in practice and way more vocal than the offenses this year When I was out in Oxnard at training camp, anytime Dan Quinn did his drill near the fence to the point where he was within earshot from where reporters can stand, I would just stand there and listen. And the clarity with which he coached and the way he was teaching and he was physically taking himself and the players through the drills, I mean, the pieces still have to come together, but the players have more confidence. And I don't have to tell you all, confidence matters when you're going to make a tackle. Confidence matters when you're trying to win a football game. And I think this defense is going to enter with more confidence than last year, and that will be a key foundation piece. Jory Epstein of USA Today with us here talking Cowboys camp. I've been asking this question of everyone. There's a lot that filters out to the national public, but it's mostly focused on Jerry Jones crying, Dax health, Zeke slimming down. What are the more localized conversations? Maybe it's about a strength or a weakness that this team is particularly focused on. A good question. One thing I will say, and and obviously Dak Prescott's been missing these practices with his shoulder, but I'm surprised how much the defense beats up on the offense and team drills. I think this offense has a lot of loaded weapons, or a lot of weapons loaded with them, and 
I would have expected them to flash more in training camp where CeeDee Lamb certainly is flashing and Ezekiel Elliott a little bit, but I'm a little surprised. I think one conversation we're having is not only about Dak's health, but the offensive line. Can these tackles stay healthy? They're looking a lot healthier than last year, but the tackle depth is just not on this roster, and so they need their starting tackles. And I think also what kind of leadership can Trayvon Diggs in the secondary show? And then, and then the last one I would say that we're all really excited about is defensive end Randy Gregory, who had his first full offseason since his rookie year back in 2015 because he's battled through some suspensions. And Randy is a player now. And DeMarcus Lawrence told us, he said, look, I'm excited to have a talent like him going against me but DeMarcus can get his game back where it is. So there are definitely plenty of storylines to follow. Jory, really quick, which do you think Ezekiel Elliott will not do first, return punts or wrap presents? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I mean, I got to say, I loved that gift wrapping scene, the video, when he's like, I just taped nothing. I just think that Zeke's inner monologue is hilarious, and I enjoy everyone. I mean, and he does this when he's interviewing with us, too, or even on the conference calls last year, which y'all know could get a little bit rough just having that much virtual availability, and Zeke would show up, and he'd go, hello, and, like, just this (laughs) drawn-out greeting when everybody else felt it sounded like they had no interest in talking, and he definitely keeps things light on this team. All right, before we let you go, Jory, I know it's early, a lot can change, but we are writing down all of our reporters' season predictions for records. We will have some sort of prize. I don't know what it is yet, but there will be one for whoever's closest. What you got, Cowboys' season record? I'll go 10-7, and which will be good enough to win. It's still struggling NFC East, but not quite good enough to make the playoff run that Jerry Jones at 78 years old is desperate to make. Awesome stuff, Jory. Always love having you on. Thanks for the time. You bet. Thanks for the outreach. See you, Sarah and Courtney. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. We're going camping with every single NFL team as we lead up to the regular season. If you missed one, you can go back and find it or subscribe to the podcast and make sure when your team comes up in the coming weeks, you get a chance to hear it. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Save when you bundle auto home or motorcycle insurance, visit Progressive.com. We're going to go camping with the Vikings, and we don't have to go far because our very own Courtney Cronin is just who we would have called to talk about Minnesota, and she happens to be hosting the show tonight. Courtney, you still get the music. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Here I am at Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining. Let's go camping with Spain and Fitz. Most of the conversation around the Vikings has been Kirk Cousins, man who says he's willing to do anything to stay safe from COVID, except the one thing that is proven to help you stay safe from COVID, which is get vaccinated. Said he would indeed be willing to walk around with a plate glass window around him at all times. Courtney, uh, let's get the Cousins stuff out of the way early. We know how a lot of fans are feeling. We certainly can imagine how teammates and coaches might be feeling, but what are you actually hearing about the players, staff, and coaches around him and how they're receiving his decision not to get vaccinated? Well, Mike Zimmer's been pretty adamant that he doesn't want to talk about this anymore and they will be forced to talk about it if it does become an issue in the regular season where guys have to miss games because they're on the COVID-19 reserve list. But it kind of feels 
like this offense and this team is a little fragile right now because they're rolling the dice, hoping that, okay, we have a handful of starters and it's not just Kirk Cousins. It's Adam Thielen. It's Harrison Smith. It's Dalvin Cook. Um, A lot of very prominent names who are not vaccinated currently at the moment. And that's, you know, it's pretty easy to tell if guys are not, or if their guys are not practicing one day, you have to wear a mask at practice. Any fan in attendance could discern that with who's vaccinated and who's not. But Kirk obviously is getting, you know, a, in the abundance of the blame here, or at least the criticism for not getting vaccinated. But you're in a position as the quarterback of this team that, you know, just spent $43 million in guaranteed contracts to fix the defense so you would have an easier job on offense to get back into the postseason. So there's certainly some some players that, you know, I've, you know, gone done through my reporting and found out are not happy with the situation right now in the quarterback room. But until, you know, collectively they're trying to kind of roll the dice here and hope they don't run into this again. But it just kind of feels like they're waiting with bated breath that this is not something that you just get out of the way in the preseason. Absolutely. This theoretically yeah. could it's, happen again. It's an issue all year season. long. Yeah. Uh, it's been an issue with him, obviously an issue with the coach who's now doing all of his work via Zoom. I don't have time for that again. Courtney, let's get to some of the other issues around this team. What are some of the Vikings' biggest weaknesses as they head into this year? Well, right now it's the offensive line. The fact that Christian Derisaw, their first-round pick, hasn't seen the field in any sort of team drills and tells us the other day, oh, he's, you know, I'm fine. I should be out there soon. He's been dealing, he had core surgery. So his groin has been an issue this off season. And then the next day, Mike Zimmer says that it's a tough one and that Derisaw is one step forward, two steps back. Well, today during joint practices with the Denver Broncos, he's not out there. He's the only player that's not out there. So this feels a little bit more like five steps back in keep you know keep going further back than that this is somebody they drafted to be a potential franchise left tackle that is not going to be starting week one I I don't see any possible way of that happening and on top of that you have a position competition you know a competition over at right guard which is an issue their interior pass protection has been lackluster and a serious problem liability for this team the last couple years it felt like when they had the draft that they settled everything and that they had two very promising rookies who would be immediate contributors. Now it doesn't feel that way. And we're starting to see now that they're playing somebody else in the preseason today with joint practices, the offensive line got worked and that's a big issue. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously Justin Jefferson, a really exciting part of this team. Mina Kimes already has him in her top 10 wide receivers in the league. A huge 1A, 1B situation with Mm -hmm. Thielen. What's a realistic expectation for him now that the league's gotten a chance to see him? Yeah, I think that people shouldn't be shocked if he doesn't reach 1,400 receiving yards next year because that means he's seeing more double teams. He's seeing bracket coverage. He's seeing a defender rolled in, an extra defender rolled in his direction. Um, and that can frustrate guys. I know that that's something that frustrated Stefan Diggs on top of the fact that the offensive scheme was, um, you know, predicated on not throwing the ball nearly as much as he would have liked. But that's one thing that I think Mike Zimmer is preaching to Jefferson through, you know, what he said so far that, don't get frustrated with that because if that happens, A, that's a sign of respect towards you, but B, 
we have Adam Thielen. There's also Irv Smith Jr., who they anticipate having a huge role in the passing game, and so far we've seen that come to fruition in training camp. You know, that opens up things for, for other playmakers, which this offense has a lot of, including someone I haven't even mentioned, Dalvin Cook. So I think that fantasy owners should definitely think of Jefferson as, as a you know wide receiver one, somebody that you want to draft early on, but don't be surprised. Don't be like upset if he if he's not reaching the same numbers that he got last year but also he did that in a pandemic with everything like (laughs) running haywire it wouldn't surprise me if he topped that or at least reached the same level that he did last year in 2021 Courtney that shoulder sprain we heard about a couple days ago not a big deal no it doesn't sound like it he's been held out of a couple practices um I, you know, when I, when I watched it, I mean, it looked a lot worse than what we're hearing the severity of it actually is, you know, separating your shoulder and the AC joint sprain, but he's been out at practice. He's been throwing the ball around with his other, with his other arm, his right arm. He, he looks like he's fine. They're just trying to like slow play this. But then again, we heard the same thing with Daniil Hunter last year at this time. Oh, it's a tweak. And that ended up turning out to being like, oh, it's a tweak. He has a herniated disc in his neck and he's out for the year and put on IR. So I'm just saying, you know, right now it doesn't seem like it's a big deal. We're being told it's not a big deal. We'll see when Jefferson gets back out there. But then again, they should not be in any sort of rush to get him back out there. Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz tonight. She's talking to me about the Vikings camp. Really quick on this, we heard about the incidents themselves, felony assault charge against his former girlfriend for Vikings cornerback Jeff Gladney. I'm just curious in terms of just the football side, since we already addressed the other side of it, how big of a hit was it for them to release him? Well, I mean, financially, they're going to try to recoup a lot of the guarantees that he had as a first-round pick. Um, He still had a lot of money on his contract. He wasn't great last year, so it's not like, oh, my gosh, you're releasing the superstar. And the fact is they have depth in places they didn't have it last year. Glad he hadn't been around the program since the 2020 season, so it's not like he was there and then all of a sudden they're trying to recoup, you know, the loss of him not being there. By the way, sorry for saying how big of a hit that was inappropriate for the story. I was trying to speed through it to get to the end in time to ask you for your prediction and tell you whether you're going to be right at the end of the season. I'm going to write it down now. Courtney Cronin, a record for the Vikings this year. I've got him at 10 and 7. Same thing as Jory picked for her Cowboys. 7. Interesting. They are certainly going to be a team worth keeping an eye on for no other reason than the drama that has already surrounded them and a lot of really exciting young players, some of whom we just talked about, and a lot of question marks around that division for sure. Coming up, we're going to talk to an actor from Field of Dreams about the experience of the movie and the upcoming week's events. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. If you build it, they will come. It's one of the most quoted, most iconic lines in sports movie history. And fortunately, we've got someone who was right at the heart of the Field of Dreams movie joining us here on Spain and Fitz. Let's head out to the Goodyear hotline now where Dwyer Brown, who played John Kinsella, the father of Ray Kinsella, that was Kevin Costner's character in Field of Dreams, joins us. Uh, We've got the big game coming up tomorrow between the White Sox and the Yankees, the Field of Dreams game that was postponed from a year ago. I just want to know, when you heard about this in the mix to actually happen. What was your take? I mean, this was something that's such such an iconic site for this game to take place, and we finally get to see that happen on Thursday. Well, yeah, when when they first mentioned the possibility, I just thought it was kind of outrageous. I I was surprised, but, I mean, pleasantly so. I think it's just what baseball needs right now is kind of a, you know, a touch of, uh, you know, the father and son aspect and, and, 
you know, kind of drawing in the fans. So I, I was thrilled. I, I wasn't sure how they were possibly going to pull it off, uh, building a major league field, uh, you know, adjacent to the to the movie site. But uh, I was out there today, and it is just spectacular and, and magical. I mean, in a very similar way to to the way the the movie site was when we first arrived at that, uh, you know, 33 years ago. <laughs> I mean, it's a town of, what, 4,000 people. They've got a new 8,000-seat stadium that was built on the site that the movie made famous. Um, what's the, I mean, what is Dyersville, Iowa like? For anybody who hasn't been there, you would imagine just a small town on the side of the road in Iowa. But when you were there filming, what was it like being a part of that community? Well, when we were filming, I mean, Dyersville had had – I mean, nothing. There were no hotels or anything. We all had to stay in Dubuque, which is about a half an hour east. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful little town, uh, but, but you know, very sleepy. I grew up in a small town in Ohio, and, uh, you know, it was it was really just very similar. I mean, I, I've been back here now to Dyersville, you know, probably two dozen times over the intervening years, and I've come to be friends with uh, a lot of the local farmers and uh and these are a fun bunch of people. I can tell you that, uh, you know, they, you know, they're hardworking Midwestern farmers, but uh, they sure know how to have a good time. <laughs> they invited me to their uh, their fireman's volunteer uh, dance, and it was a crazy affair with uh, rock bands and, and kids there from the, in their teens to 80-year-olds dancing their hearts out. I, I was, <laughs> I've been blown away by the by the resiliency and, and the fun-loving nature of, of uh, Dyersvillians or whatever you call them. <laughs> it's Spain and Fitz here on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app. We're talking with Dwyer Brown, courtesy of the Goodyear Hotline. How did the role of John Kinsella come your way? Uh, well, it was just another audition that came down the pike. I had read the book Shoeless Joe, on which the movie is based, in college and just loved it. So, you know, anytime you get an audition for something uh, that you know the material for, it's an added bonus. Uh, I mean, I wanted this part bad, but, you know, I, I always uh, wanted parts I auditioned for. And, uh, you know, I had, I guess, uh, I found out since that there's about 300 other guys uh, who auditioned for it. And uh, I just feel incredibly lucky to have been a part of it because, you know, it was a five minute role. And uh, here we are still talking about it uh, 33 years later. Was there any kind of wow moment that you can recall after the release where you knew that your life and your acting career was going to be different from this point on? Well, I can tell you there has been almost nothing but nonstop wow moments uh, since the movie. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we did this movie, most of us, because it was such a sweet script. It was a low-budget movie, uh, and so, uh, you know, and, and – it didn't have anything that would have recommended it as going to be a, a great movie or a big money maker or a, certainly a classic. I mean, there's no sex, there's no violence, there's no love story. There's, you know, it's, it's a very sweet, humble movie. And uh, the moments that kind of, uh, I mean, you know, even universal wasn't hot on it. They were going to release it straight to video. Uh, and uh, if, if Steven Spielberg hadn't intervened and snuck into a screening and convinced them that they should release it uh, into theaters. It might never have happened. And, and even at that, uh, Rolling Stone magazine called it the worst movie of 1989 when it came out. Um, but I think for me, when we went to the cast and crew screening, which is usually kind of a pretty rowdy affair where, you know, all the people who worked on the movie watch it, you know, the day before it's released, 
usually everybody's making fun of each other and teasing each other. uh, But, you know, we all got very quiet just the way audiences did when they first saw it. And, uh, you know, I know many of us, Kevin and and Tim Busfield and and Ray and all of us were, we were in tears at the end of the movie and, and we were in it. So, you know, we knew at that point that we had made something that was kind of bigger than all of us. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been nothing but, you know, wow moments since, but that including having an MLB game played, you know, right next to the Field of Dreams movie site, you know, this many years later. The White Sox-Yankees Field of Dreams game is tomorrow night, Thursday. Coverage begins at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio. We're talking now with Dwyer Brown, who was in Field of Dreams 30-plus years ago. Why do you think this movie resonates all these years later? We were just talking to somebody moments ago uh, in studio who said he watched it for the first time ever. Um, And I mean, I remember when I was nine years old, my father, my brother and I sitting down to watch this movie. And even all these years later, you can still quote lines from it. People still have their memories associated with this movie. Why do you think that is? Well, Courtney, I I mean, you know, it's, it's considered a baseball movie, but you know, we all know there's very little actual baseball that's played in the movie. I, I think it has to come down to the, the father and son relationship, father and daughter relationship. I mean, you know, he, he even the way, you know, Ray treats his, uh, his little daughter, Karen, you know, takes her on the tractor and teaches her all about baseball. You know, you, you might've had a similar experience. And, and I think there's also this aspect of having a second chance, you know, even for people who had a, a, a fairly challenging relationship with their, with their father, who wouldn't give a second chance to maybe make that right? You know, once once people are, are have passed on, it it feels like an impossible task to try to heal a relationship. And and, and even for people who had a great relationship, who's, their dads played catch with them every night, who wouldn't who wouldn't give another opportunity to to have a catch with their dad? So, I think it just hits that chord and that magical idea of meeting our parents again and possibly when they're younger and and have all their vitality and and you know would we get along with them would we be friends would we you know so i I think it just touches on on a a pretty universal theme of second chances and and uh and you know your love for your parents that goes beyond frequently beyond the grave Back in 2016, you wrote a book called If You Build It, a book about fathers, fate, and the field of dreams. Will you take us behind the process of writing that book and what you took away from the movie that inspired it? Yeah, I I guess it it started with, uh, you know, about a a month or so after the movie came out, I was out at a... I'd been camping and I was all, you know, mis- you know, unshaven and smelling like smoke. And I, I stopped at a little grocery store and some guy's kind of following me around the aisles and he comes up and he says, Hey man, uh, I'm sorry to bother you, but did, did I, do we go to high school together? And I said, ah, no, I, I went to high school in Ohio. I'm, I'm sure he goes, Oh my gosh, you look like that guy from field of dreams. And I, and I was like taken aback. Cause I, I'd been acting for eight years, but nobody'd ever recognized me in the street. Certainly not, you know, in the state I was in at the time. And, Anyway, he, you know, I said, well, I, I am that guy from Field of Dreams. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, yeah, actually, I am. And and when he realized that, indeed, I was this guy who had played this five minutes at the end of the movie, he, he teared up and, and, you know, confided in me that he and his father had never gotten along. And that when that movie came out, he just grabbed his dad by the arm and and, and took him to the movie and that they just decided to get over this, you know, longstanding argument they had. And I had 
these experiences time after time, you know, not, not every day, but every few months, some other person would tell me an outrageous story of how they changed careers because of the movie Field of Dreams. And, and you know, I was just in awe of this. And when uh, I, I just decided to start putting it into a book. And uh, when, when I started thinking about that, I, I had my own stories about my dad, who, who I had a difficult relationship with for, for a few years. And, um, you know, he died 36 days before I went to go shoot the movie. So wow. it was, you can imagine what it was like to leave his funeral and then go to Iowa to walk out of a cornfield as a dead father to play catch with their son. It, it made the uh, whole experience much more resonant for me. Um, so that was really the impetus of the book. And then I included a lot of the crazy fun stories we had shooting the movie, uh, you know, Kevin and, and, and Ray and all these guys, you know, stuck in a, uh, little backwater town in, in Iowa were pretty stir crazy. And, and we had an awful lot of fun, uh, you know, off the set. So I try to include all those things in the, in the book because, uh, you know, people have asked me about them over the years. I was about to say, I mean, you were part of a movie that had Hollywood heavyweights left and right. Kevin Costner, James Earl Jones, Burt Lancaster. Do you have a favorite story from your time on set with these guys? Well, I included a chapter about almost all of them in the book because they were all amazing. I mean, Burt Lancaster, when I was a kid, I used to do uh, imitations of Burt Lancaster, you know, and Humphrey Bogart. So, you know, to meet this guy and be in a movie with him was, you know, just, I mean, I was a farm boy from Ohio. It was, it seemed just impossible. And then, of course, James Earl Jones, I, you know, like, how do you, how do you say hello to Darth Vader? You know, like, <laughs> I was just, you know, as much as you're an actor in a movie, you sort of have to act cool because you're, you're working with these people. You don't want to be a, a you know, a fanboy. But, you know, with this cast, it was just sort of amazing. I was very stumbling, you know, talking, uh, trying to say hello to James Earl the first time, you know, I was trying to think, what do I say? Uh, oh, gosh, Mr. Earl Jones, what do I mean? is it Earl Jones or is it? Mr. Jones and, uh, you know, and I was just sitting there fretting over how I was going to introduce myself. And suddenly his this big hand comes over and he says, hi, I'm Jimmy. And, uh, you know, he shook my hand and, uh, you know, he was just the nicest guy, but, uh, he was the one that I was very, very intimidated to meet. And, um, you know, he, he, uh, disavowed me of any of my, uh, trepidation immediately with his, uh, big booming voice, which, I can tell you is more impressive in person than it is on screen even because you can see that they're not enhancing it with anything. It just is coming out of this man, this, this resonant voice that's vibrating the, the, you know, the items on the table in front of you. So I, I had quite an experience with everybody. Dwyer Brown played John Kinsella in Field of Dreams. The Field of Dreams game takes place tomorrow night. White Sox-Yankees covered starting 6.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Before I let you go, Dwyer, I know that you partnered up with a charity called the Comfort Zone Camp and that there's a limited edition Field of Dreams cornflakes. How did this idea come together and where can people grab a box? Uh, well, gosh, yeah, I was approached by an organization called uh, PLB Sports in Pittsburgh who who did Flutie Flakes uh, years ago, for those of you who remember. And, you know, they're big Field of Dreams fans, as, as so many people are. And uh, they thought we should have a, you know, Field of Dreams cereal for, for the big game. And uh, what's kind of fun is they let me design the box. And uh, on the back, I put a little maze, you know, for, for kids or grownups to play with. And there's a collector baseball card of John Kinsella that, 
that I, I commissioned an artist, uh, Arthur K. Miller, to create. And so it's a pretty cool box. And um, and this Comfort Zone Camp is this great uh, organization that has provided free summer camp to 20,000 kids who have lost their parent or a sibling. Uh, you know, and as, as young kids, that's a difficult thing to deal with. And a regular summer camp can be difficult because, you know, people ask you, oh, how's your family? And, you know, all those things that 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 are awkward subjects for people who have, you know, tragically lost someone, uh, you know, prematurely. Uh, what I find compelling is that, you know, some of the people who lost parents in uh, 9-11, you know, went to these camps. And, and now, this many years later, they're helping younger people now who've, you know, maybe lost someone to COVID and, and helping them deal with this grief. And it, it seemed so appropriate to feel the dreams with the, with the father and son and kind of getting a second chance with your parent, uh, after, you know, after they're already gone that, uh, you know, they seem like a great partner. So any, anybody who wants to buy them, you can get them online at field of dreams, serial.com. Or if you happen to be in the Midwest at uh, participating high V grocery stores, I was, I did three store appearances while I was here and signing boxes for people. And it was, uh, it was really, you know, quite emotional. Wow. That is incredible. Dwyer, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. You're, it's great to, great to be on. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. We start out the show with the good news that Dak Prescott has been able to throw passes in two straight weeks or uh, two straight days, I should say. That last night's Hard Knocks episode kind of left us wondering, is it serious? Or are they just being extra precautious? And now in the midst of our show, we get a tweet from the Dallas Cowboys about a half hour ago. It's not a setback, and it's not a reason to worry, but QB Dak Prescott is planning on getting another MRI. So, of course, Pat McAfee tweets it out with an everybody panic gif. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, filling in for Fitz tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Courtney, when they have to write that, it sure makes me worried. On the other hand, I don't know if there's... Any way to announce that he's getting an MRI without people panicking or to try to pass it off without letting anyone know he's getting an MRI and hope nobody finds out. So is this just nothing and they had to put that? I don't know. It certainly feels like something. I mean, the way that the tweet was written (laughs) is like the most panicky language and I guess just like syntax and everything else with the sentence um, and the line breaks and all of that. But this is not a grammar lesson. This is uh, talking about Dak Prescott and the fact that he needs another MRI. Look, when Jory was talking about this, Jory Epstein of USA Today, who covers the Cowboys, joined us earlier here on Spain and Fitz. Um, when she had mentioned just about the time that they're taking and how coy they were trying to play it at first. And then we find out on hard knocks a little bit more about the day that he started dealing with the shoulder soreness. And then all the experts that they consulted with on the outside, all of that led me to believe that they would probably be doing this MRIs for their evaluation, at least once or twice more just to make sure everything's okay. But it's just a very weirdly worded tweet from the official team account. Like the fact is <laughs> not like Schefter's tweeting this out and using this sort of uh, language as a way to do it. It just kind of has a weird undertone it's weird. to it. it they, do, weird. they do say he's still eyeing the same return and that it's part of the conversation we were having that was positive, which was him making his way back into practice and throwing, throwing some passes. But uh, we wait. 
We wait and see just how it looks as we uh, as we continue to inch closer to real games or even preseason games. Uh, Spain and Fit, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, filling in with me tonight. Don't forget, you could tune into the That's What She Said podcast, hosted by yours truly and fueled by Gatorade. I so appreciate their continued support of women's sports journalists and athletes here at ESPN and everywhere, whatever path you take to greatness. Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. Stan Van Gundy on my podcast this week. It's a good one. We share a mutual uh, affinity for plain chips with delicious dips. We don't want a bunch of chemicals making the chips taste a certain way. Just plain with the dips. We also get into tons of basketball stuff. Um, why he really stepped down as head coach of the Heat, what happened with the Pelicans, all sorts of good stuff with Stan Van Gundy. So check it out. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Also, a note, uh, we are off tomorrow night, and I am off on Friday, and I wanted a chance, Courtney, to quickly talk about something that's going down tomorrow night, the WNBA Commissioner's Cup Championship game. It's going to be at the Footprint Center in Phoenix. Seattle Storm representing the West, Connecticut Sun representing the East. It's going to be live streamed on Amazon Prime. Lisa Leslie, Lisa Byington. This is the first time that they're doing this in-season tournament. Uh, This is, uh, you know, for a ton of money on the line and also bragging rights of winning the first official Commissioner's Cup. And as you know, Courtney, they often, the NBA uses the WNBA as sort of a a beta tester, a little bit of a testing ground for things that they might bring over. There's been conversation from Adam Silver about a midseason tournament, and that's what we're getting tomorrow night. Uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, each team in the league played 10 games to figure out who would represent the conference, and then now those winners face off. The highest win percentage, you know, of those faces off, and 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 big Tons of money prize going to the players. $500,000 pool. Do you like this for the WNBA? And do you like it eventually maybe for the NBA? Yeah, that's exactly where my brain went when you were talking about this, that this is something that the NBA has toyed around with. And I know some players have already spoken out whether you know they're, they're for or against it. But I do think that this is a great opportunity to see how it's going to work. I mean, there's a lot of money on the line. This isn't some like $10,000, $50,000 prize, $500,000, um, which you would imagine in the NBA that would probably be, you know, twice that. And I would really curious to see how competitive it gets because with these mid-season tournaments, I mean, you've you already seen like in the traditional format with like the NBA All-Star game, Major League Baseball's All-Star game, NHL and its All-Star game. I mean, the NFL has the Pro Bowl, but that's after the season's over. Um I've always kind of felt we need to up the ante with those to try to make it more competitive when you actually have a mid-season tournament that has an effect on you know, financial earnings and potentially, you know, how it's going to play out for the rest of the season, depending upon the teams that'll be in this. I think this is actually a really good idea. So I'm curious. I'll probably end up tuning into it tomorrow night just to kind of see what the environment's like and also what the level of play is. Because you got to Well, it's going to be huge, Courtney, because uh, to your point, like we already know who's in it and it's just one game, right? It's been a tournament throughout to set up this one game for all the marbles. So You've got two teams that know tomorrow night you could treat it like a regular season game, but none of the other regular season games are earning you $500,000, right? So you also, interestingly, have a a favorite from the beginning, defending champion 
in the storm, who, of course, have a couple Olympians on their squad coming home with gold medals, didn't get that month-long break that the rest of the WNBA did. And on this side, you have a Connecticut Sun team that a lot of early predictions didn't have going very far and have bunked all of that since the start of the season, uh, really looking strong. So uh, I think a lot of people putting their bets down are probably going to take the storm, but the Sun certainly have something to say about it, especially, again, because you've got three players from the storm uh, Sue Bird, Brianna Stewart, um, and uh, uh, Jewel Lloyd, who are coming off, uh, you know, not only the games, but the travel from Tokyo. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, how, what's that level of play? And two Australian like? Olympians. How tired are they that going I forgot to be, about. too? Yeah, yeah I mean, two this, Australian Olympians on happened. the storm. Yeah. And they just, when the United States just, you know, won the gold medal, it's not that this, ha- like, this is, it feels like a while ago the WNBA season was, like, in full you know, in full sprint. And then we had the Olympic break. And and now this, I think, is a good way to kind of get back into that down the stretch of the season. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be good. I mean, I will watch anything with Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart in it. I think we are incredibly lucky anytime we have a chance to see those two do anything. Uh, Just the records, the accomplishments are sort of unfathomable when you actually, like, see them all in print. I saw a lot of people passing around all the championships Sue Bird has won, dating back to, you know, New York City High School all the way up to her fifth Olympic gold medal. Uh, So it'll be fun to see, and it'll, of course, be fun to get that underway and see if it ends up carrying over to the other league. John Quill Jones, the son, said, you know, you you see on ESPN about how the NBA is thinking about doing an in-season tournament. And I'm like, been there, done that. We're always the first to do things. I like that we're the first to bring things up. So setting the stage again is the WNBA. And after tomorrow's game, then the regular season gets back underway in full force. Um, was a really exciting, pretty deep standings with a lot of teams having the room to move up for the playoffs uh, when they took their Olympic break. So lots to get to there. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.